Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you are having a good start to your week so far. Hard to believe tomorrow will mark another halfway point to another week. I tell you, time moves by quickly, especially the older we get. One thing I do know is that it's always important to make the time to prepare whenever I'm on the whenever I'm getting ready to come on the air uh, for podcasting, regardless of whatever book topic series has been discussed from the past, including the one that we're currently doing in the present. It is very important to be prepared because uh, you know it's one thing to know information. It's another thing to be able to tell it. And it's also another thing to be able to tell it right when you have up to 60 minutes, a.k.a. one hour, to tell your audience what you know is appropriate and necessary, not only worth sharing, but what is beneficial to the audience so that they will walk away knowing that they learned something different that they didn't know beforehand. And that with time, once the end results come through, they will gain a much better appreciation or, or a better understanding, I should say, of behind what took place with regards to a particular story or person uh, that will um, help them go forward in understanding the times that not only the individual lived in, but the times in which a situation occurred and how it would differ from today's um, society. So, to me, uh, podcasting is a work of art. I see it as a work of art because I'm constantly having to uh, navigate through the chapters of any book that I've done and be able to tell you all what I know is worth sharing, but at the same time, while yes, I can find other information that might seem fascinating to tell, then I have to say to myself, don't get sidetracked or think about how you want to go about consolidating. In other words, if you know you're near the end of a chapter, take what's left from the chapter, find out what's necessary to discuss, and then move on to that next chapter. Bottom line is that it uh, involves research, but in order to do it right, thoroughly examine what's necessary, what's appropriate to share. And once you have all that going, anything is possible. It may not happen overnight with instant success. When I look back on it now, when I first started podcasting, I'm not sure if it, I'm not sure maybe if what I had uh, shared early on flowed thoroughly. And maybe I'm saying that because the first book topic series we did was uh, Dan Abrams' John Adams Under Fire, The Boston Massacre Trials. Now, don't get me wrong, that was a great series. I look back on it now and and uh, realize that that was a great um, starting uh, book. And what do you know, almost three years later, I'm talking about the Boston Massacre again, but from a different perspective, a family history. And isn't it fair to say that we have um, come to learn that, you know, the textbooks may have told us that the, um, that the troops arrived, came from England, they just uh, journeyed across the Atlantic Ocean without any stops and made their way into Boston and the rest was history. No, that's not how it worked, folks. And I think all of us are coming to the realization that, no, a lot that the uh, regiments were, many of these regiments actually came from Ireland given that they were um, they were uh, being moved around from points A to B in Ireland, where, um, what do you call it, a, a greater presence of troops was needed. 
And then when the time came to uh, shift those troops elsewhere, they were sent to Nova Scotia, and then 400 miles south by water to Boston. So I think it's fair to say by now we have uh, gotten a good handle on some uh, very uh, unique um, on some unique information. Now, I will point out in this uh, podcast segment episode uh, to the Boston Massacre of Family History, we're going to learn a little bit more about soldiers' uh, friendships and the interactions with, uh, with local Bostonians and, and with regards to how those uh, connections with the locals um, made things either for better or for worse. Uh, we'll also learn how British officers had to go about modifying their um, means of pursuit and uh, tracing down those whom had deserted uh, regiments, most notably 14th and 29th Regiment. We will also learn about the time frame, most notably uh, early 1770. You know, in other words, we're going to, believe it or not, folks, we're actually going to start getting into early 1770. And we're going to start learning uh, some basic fundamentals, or basic information, I should say, behind what will ultimately lead up to uh, the events that occurred on the evening of March 5th, 1770. As I've said many of times before, and I'll say it again, we can't assume no longer that what happened on the night of March 5th, 1770 was an isolated incident. It wasn't. So in order to better understand what will come on March 5th, 1770, we still need to continue to learn a little bit more about the current uh, presence of British occupation, and uh, but most of all, we will uh, be delving into the early parts of 1770. So our first lead-off question for this uh, podcast segment episode to, to the Boston Massacre of a Family History by Serena Zabin is the following. Did soldiers' friendships, including frequent interactions, as well as unexpected encounterings, with local Bostonians have potential to extend their connections. Well, I think it'd be fair to say that anytime you um, have frequent interactions as well as unexpected encounters, as long as they are for the better with anyone, that one's ability to have uh, connections be extended to their advantage, you would think it would be possible. So the answer to this question is... um, Yes, but it's not so much within the town of Boston, folks. It also would pertain to those um, outside of Boston. You know, say maybe 10 miles outside the town, and perhaps as far west as 50 miles outside of the town. And most notably, when I think of towns outside of Boston, 50 miles away, I think of Worcester. So for starters, those uh, soldiers whom deserted did make long-term lasting, or I should say permanent relations, most notably with single women, okay? And if those whom have uh, deserted did make um, permanent relations with single women, more than likely that would have uh, resulted in um, in a union taking place, aka a marriage. On the other hand, though, Believe it or not, folks, here's a great example of something that we would consider to be opposite, but in fact it did happen. While in jail for theft, come April 1770, 
Private Hugh Anderson became acquainted with 20 other individuals, both men and women, folks. Now, I don't know what the exact breakdown of the other 20 individuals was. Was that 10 men and 10 women? I'm not exactly sure, but Private Hugh Anderson has become acquainted with 20 other individuals, being both men and women. And what does Private Hugh Anderson have in common with these other 20 individuals? Well, we know for one, he's in jail for theft, but it just so happens that all other, all the other 20 individuals, men and women, are in jail for the same offense, being that of theft. What a coincidence is that, folks. Okay, and what could all 21 of these individuals be talking about? Some of them might be embarrassed to talk about what they did in terms of what constituted being theft. But the bottom line is they all know that they are being charged with some form of theft. It might be fair to say that um, I don't know what uh, happened to the rest of those people, but it might be fair to say that, um, well, I know if you lived in Virginia and you were charged with theft and found guilty, of course, you would have been branded on your thumb with the letter T and people would have known that you had uh, stolen someone's property at some point in your life and you were uh, marked as um, as a thief for life. I'm not sure how they um, did that in Massachusetts, but it might be fair to say that they also would have branded you, um, given if you were found guilty of theft, they would have branded you with the letter T on your thumb. But anyways, uh, Private Hugh Anderson and these other 20 individuals all have something in common and that they are all in jail for theft. However, once... Um, it, it, believe it or not, folks, even Private Hugh Anderson was released from jail. So once he was released, he did return brief, briefly to the uh, 14th Regiment. But in the end, he ultimately deserted for good. Come summer of 1771, he was never recaptured, which is pretty amazing. But in December of 1773, the same year that the infamous Boston Tea Party incident occurred uh, being around the middle of uh, December 1773. I want to say it was around December 16th when nearly uh, 350 uh, chests of tea were uh, dumped into Boston Harbor. And believe it or not, folks, they're actually, believe it or not, in uh, Boston, Massachusetts, they have, they were able to, um, it's still on display after nearly 250 years, one chest of tea is still preserved from from the time it was um how do you call it from the time it was pulled out of the water nearly 250 years ago it's still preserved in its um original content one of the few that never got ripped apart by the um protesters who uh for one peacefully escorted the uh british merchantmen off their ships only to um literally destroy every chest of tea they could get their hands on by with the end result of dumping it into the Boston Harbor. So in uh, but as for uh, Private Hugh Anderson in December of 1773 he re he reappeared in Boston's records by marrying a woman by the name of Susanna Jordan. So it just goes to show you folks that you didn't always have to be 
in the most common of 101 settings to make uh, connections with people that you, that you did not know beforehand. It just so happens that Private Hugh Anderson was in jail of all places where he became acquainted with others whom had committed the same offenses he had, regardless of whether they were part of the uh, greater British Army or if they were, uh, or if these were people who were uh, local Bostonians or local townspeople, I should say. British officers uh, modified desertion issues by going as far as advertising reward captures in the papers where they offered any locals, or I should say in this case any local, up to three guineas if apprehending a deserter. So, if I'm a British officer and I approach Mr. John Smith and say to him, look, we're going to um, go about um, getting some uh, wanted ads in uh, newspapers for uh, captives whom were once a part of our regiment, but we know they've deserted. But if you come across Tom Jones, Private Tom Jones, make sure that he is apprehended immediately. We will take care of the rest of it, but if you help us, you will see up to three guineas. I'm not sure what the what three guineas would uh, be the equivalent to in today's modern-day money, but to receive three guineas, that is a very nice uh, reward. I think it might be fair to say that three guineas could buy one something very uh, fancy, something that most other people might not have not only access to in for, in, with regards to the form of money, but also for the item that they might like to uh, purchase as well. So, yes, British officers did modify desertion issues by advertising reward captures in the newspapers uh, where they would offer any local townsperson up to three guineas if apprehending a deserter for those whom deserted and returned within the same month. Officers, believe it or not, promised issuing pardons. Interesting. So if you deserted in the month of um, October at the start, but you came back, you could have been issued a pardon. However, I must say, folks, there is a catch to this. The advertisements that uh, British officers issued in newspapers included a large list of those not eligible for pardons because of their actions, or I should say offenses, uh, committed, meaning the army wasn't going to forgive them. Wow, so that really is a catch right there. Well, how about this one? Remember Private Daniel Rogers, whom was um, whipped unrelentlessly he got up to about 170 lashes and even though um, what's his face lieutenant colonel william dalrymple the lead commander of the 14th regiment had said after receiving a um a petition by a handful of um boston or a handful of local uh, bostonian women i should say and probably a fair number of uh, requests from uh, local bostonian men to uh, plead for uh, mercy, compassion, the lashes stopped. 
it's a miracle that uh, Private uh, Daniel Rogers uh, even survived. However, <laughs> Private Daniel Rogers' name was on the newspaper list of those not eligible for pardon. So yes, he didn't have to endure any more lashes, which was a blessing, but yet he wasn't issued a pardon. So that's where the catch is, folks, the double-edged sword. Now, the fall of 1769, Lieutenant Colonel William Dalrymple sent an individual whom rode around the New England countryside conversing with locals in the hopes of discovering former soldiers. This individual's travels went from Massachusetts to New Hampshire that uh, resulted in in the news of multiple deserters, all of whom having found work, including settling into communities. The status amongst these British soldiers whom deserted was not a close secret, given many had already begun making new families, including performing skilled as well as unskilled work. You know, it's one thing to keep a secret, but then you have to wonder how long could you even keep, how long could a local keep the secret? Even locals, folks, were intimidated by um, what they probably knew deep down were uh, British soldiers and officers coming into their towns um, all disguised in an incognito way. In other words, they were disguising themselves without revealing their true identity. But it is fair to say that even local townspeople knew what um, what tactics uh, British officers and soldiers were up to, given that one desertions, the uh, issue over desertions never went away, and two, the numbers behind desertions were always bound to increase, and so British officers, including uh, troops whom did not desert, were willing to partake in these undercover missions where they were willing to go as far as offering townspeople money and perhaps an incentive over time to maybe switch allegiances. I mean, at this point, folks, we don't have anything like a loyalist camp or a patriot camp just yet, but it might be fair to say that there are plenty of people in Boston who already know where their loyalties are, but we just haven't got those proper... Um, coined phrases or coined terms yet of loyalist, loyal to the crown, king, country, patriot, um, anti-crown, anti-king and country. Um, you know, we, uh, we don't like the, you know, the presence of uh, British troops here, but we also don't like uh, being, um, being forced to um, become subjected to laws that were passed but did not get our consent. You know, as for skilled work, that when we think of skilled work, folks, we think of work that involves either learning a trade or learning from someone where you, you can pick up the trait very quickly and are able to perform the uh, work on your own. So whenever I think of a skilled worker, well, one example comes to my mind, um, 101 would be that of a cobbler. I know some of you uh, young people might be thinking to yourselves, what in the world is a cobbler? Uh, when we think of cobbler, usually we tend to think of dessert. But a cobbler, folks, was one whom repaired 
people's shoes. So if your shoes were still um, doable, uh, that is to be used, but yet needed some um, fixings or um, basic repairs, you took it to the cobbler who repaired your shoes for you. So this way your shoes might last you another, say, six months, or it might get you through the rest of the uh, what's left of the uh, existing year before the new year sets in. Unskilled work is, uh, for example, like bringing in the harvest, you know, bringing in the crops. That doesn't require um, any kind of trade. In other words, anybody can, you know, help bring in um, the uh, harvest. Lieutenant Colonel uh, Dalrymple of the 14th uh, Regiment did have some success, or I should say that, um, officers and uh, troops under uh, Colonel Lieutenant Colonel uh, William Dalrymple's uh, regiment, of the, being that of the 14th, did have some success in bringing deserters back to Boston, where public whippings resumed along Boston Common, and in the year of 1769, Lieutenant Colonel Dalrymple continued overseeing that uh, court-martial hearings for deserters uh, took place. Well, I will say this, never a dull moment when it comes to uh, hunting and uh, bringing down those who uh, desert from within the British Army. Now we're going to be uh, moving on to um, the start of 1770. But before we get into like events, we do need to find out about... Um, some particular people. This is one fella whose name is going to come up quite, his name's going to come up a, a lot more. Maybe not um, in this particular episode after I mention his name um, here shortly, but he, he but his name is going to be uh, mentioned in other uh, podcast segments of this uh, series. So here we go. Was Hugh White a member of the 29th Regiment of Foot? Yes, his rank was that of private. He joined the 29th Regiment in 1759 from County Down in Northern Ireland. He was most likely recruited to join the regiment at the same time that Matthew Chambers had done so. Like Chambers, Hugh White himself was just shy of age 20 when recruited. Whereas Matthew Chambers was a skilled laborer, and being a tailor. Hugh White was the exact opposite. He was an unskilled laborer, but yet he was literate and could sign his name without any issues, whereas Matthew Chambers um, lacked uh, literacy and uh, writing um, skills. He, he lacked the proper literacy and writing skills. I still find it hard to believe that there were British troops who, um, whom were illiterate and whom had difficulties with writing. Wouldn't you think, before sending troops to various places around the world, that they would that the British Army or perhaps the War Office would have um, would have provided um, would have provided for people within the army? Of course, yes, this would have cost money. Of course, nothing's free. But wouldn't you think that maybe the British War Office would have provided for one or two people to um, to help those whom were not proficient with reading or proficient in writing to at least be able to um, better improve upon themselves so that when they were out in the public, 
they could go about performing tasks without any without anyone staring at them or or without uh, ridiculing them you just have to wonder i often wonder that so um yes we know that uh, hugh white was um was literate and could sign his name without any issues and he had no troubles in establishing relationships or i should say friendships over um a one and a half year time span since uh, first arriving to boston what I also found interesting was that during uh, the decades of the 1760s and 1770s, this marked a period of time which saw, a large in, which saw a large increase in the number of single women coming into Boston looking either for work or finding a partner, you know, being a husband, whom they could marry. I found this interesting about uh, Jane Crothers. She was married to Joseph Whitehouse of the 14th Regiment in early 1770, Prior to March of 1770, Jane lacked money to pay taxes, including staying at a poorhouse, which meant that newcomers to Boston would not be eligible for assistance from the town if they found themselves facing dire circumstances. Jane Crothers was a local Bostonian, but her husband wasn't. Very interesting uh, situation there, to say the least. Now, let's talk about a, um, a building, not just an ordinary building, but a building of unique significance. Which building at the end of Boston's King Street reigns supreme? It just so happened to be a three-tiered tower of the townhouse, which happened to be taller than the dome of the church, which was located from behind. And I'm sure some of you are thinking now, how in the world do you know, Kirk, about this three-tiered tower of a townhouse on King Street? I don't know if I should give it away just yet. So maybe, so my decision is I'm not going to give it away then. And there might be a reason for it. So anyways, yes, this three-tiered three -tiered tower of the townhouse happened to be taller than the dome of the church that was located from behind. Along the roof side stood two large carvings, being that of a unicorn and a lion, representing England and Scotland, whom comprised the United Kingdom of Great Britain. Okay, folks, so we're not, you know, these animals aren't representing anything uh, to be cute or to be um, attractive, presentable. While, yes, it could be something that is presentable, but it's presentable from a political perspective. A unification perspective. The unicorn and the lion represent England and Scotland that comprise the United Kingdom of Britain. Who's opposed to the United Kingdom of Britain and who technically really isn't even doesn't want any part of it? Ireland. Now, from the time uh, this had been going on for some time now, the local militia would hold parades on King Street per each year on King George III's birthday. So remember, folks, King George has been the King of England since late 1760, at least since October 1760. So by the time 1770 rolls around, he has already been King of England for a decade. 
You know, he's, his, the, the early years saw his country emerge victorious from the Seven Years' War. Now he's beginning to call many of his uh, subjects, being the 13 North American colonies. Matter of fact, I wouldn't say many. He's probably seen, viewing all of them as ungrateful subjects, given that they've you know, refused to help out with um, paying their share of taxes and, you know, the whole nine yards. So, yes, uh, the local militia holds parades on King Street for each year on George III's birthday. Spring of 1769, Private Hugh White of the 29th Regiment partook in the festivities. As the cannons were lit, women celebrated, to children playing in the street, by partaking in the rituals, this meant everyone present on site was demonstrating loyalty to the crown. If you don't want to partake in the festivities, that's one thing, but if you're not going to do it, then it's probably best not to um, make a scene where if you where if you make a fool out of yourself and you are showing disloyalty to the crown, you'll um, not only humiliate yourself, but you could humiliate other people around you to where you probably would get whipped in front of your uh, peers. I'm not trying to sound barbaric, folks, but um, but it is fair to say that you are being watched. From all corners. This uh, three-tier level uh, townhouse also included a surrounding area meant to promote fear and celebration. Given a whipping post stayed at King Street despite a new courthouse opening on Queen Street west of the townhouse. So you might get punished uh, on King Street, but if you didn't learn your lesson on King Street, then it's fair to say that the next place you'll go is on Queen Street, where the new courthouse is, where, where you might be facing uh, an even uh, stiffer punishment. Crimes from theft to counterfeiting saw men and women of Boston get up to 39 lashes. That was the minimum, or rather I should say the maximum, amount of lashes one could receive under the uh, Massachusetts uh, court's And believe it or not, while men and women could get up to 39 lashes on their back, others were watching and others were minding their own business as if nothing was going on by shopping in the greater um, town. And there were no armed guards patrolling uh, the townhouse, but up to three soldiers stood guard just under 100 yards away at the front of the customs house. Guardsmen on duty wore bright red coats. Bright red coats, folks. That's uh, that ought to tell us something right there. Yep. So the red, so the uh, guardsmen on duty wore bright red coats, aka red coats. Although uh, the guardsmen had other duties to fulfill while not on assignment, but while on duty, the presence of British guardsmen in their finest attire, including carrying to holding muskets on their shoulders was meant to serve as symbols of the larger British Empire. So, yes, it's one thing to wear a uniform. It's another thing to not only be wearing a uniform, uh, but to uh, carry your musket on your shoulder. And who knows, you might even have your bayonet out, fixed out, to, to display another means, means of uh, power. In other words, if you, if you act up, if you do something that uh, disrupts the 
power of the British Empire during our presence here. Expect something dire. Expect something that you might, in terms of punishment, that you just may not be able to take back. Here's our next question. Uh, were British troops welcomed? You know, if, how should I say this? Uh, what we're going to learn here is that, you know, we've been focusing so much time on the presence of British troops in Boston. We now have to um, go backwards and think to ourselves, okay, what is the life, or not so much what is the life, but what is the presence of, what is the overall presence of British troops like 3,000 miles across the ocean, opposite direction per their own home country in England. So, our question here is this. Were British troops welcomed into, Brit into Britain's cities? In other words, were they welcomed into cities like London, uh, Plymouth, Bristol, Liverpool? Just a handful of uh, British cities, but those are some of the big ones that come to my mind. What do you all think? Uh, do you think British troops were welcomed into their own uh, major cities, or, or including small towns? Uh, the answer is no. Considering tensions often emerged between civilians and regiments, which meant when conflict, or I should say trouble, arose within a city, the government called out troops to restore order in peaceful times. So just because there was conflict or trouble within a city at, at any particular time, that didn't automatically mean that um, that times were terrible, times were, were so bad that it constituted war. But we do have to keep in mind, even in peaceful times, a conflict or two did arise. And if people didn't uh, assemble properly, or if, um, if their actions got out of hand to where uh, troops lie, to where um, if people's actions got out of hand to the point where there was no end in sight in terms of how to go about properly protesting and properly assembling and petitioning, then troops were called out to do what was necessary in restoring the order. The 1760s in England saw many troops not only move and get stationed throughout various towns in England and Scotland, but it was also a time where Britain's war office began requesting more troop units to perform general police duty. So it's one thing for uh, troops amongst the various regiments to get uh, stationed throughout uh, numerous towns in England and Scotland, but they are also now being required to perform general police duty. So is it fair to say now that when uh, soldiers are being asked to do more than they should be, that this could be a sign of some uh, potential conflict? I think it is very possible, yes. Here's a question for you all. For the town of Boston comes 1770, what was the greatest matter lying at stake? How about the British Empire's ability to control trade? which in turn also meant sending officials, or rather I should say customs officials, over whose jobs involved seeing to it that colonists, or in this case the Bostonians, paid their taxes without resorting to unlawful practices as a means of restoring order in peacetime. When I think of unlawful practices that many uh, Bostonians were engaging in, those 
whom would have been considered the mob, the unruly crowd? How about those whom harassed customs officials, not only harassed them verbally, but went as far as vandalizing their homes, destroying uh, good portions of their homes, to the point where many customs officials left, resigned, or in some instances not only just resigned, but were forced to swear upon a Bible, to take up an oath saying, hey, I will not impose, um, I will not force you all against your, uh, against your all's own will to uh, pay up on the taxes. In other words, by, uh, t by agreeing to this oath, I will not harass you all and I will um, actually be on your all's side. In other words, if I don't agree to the oath, the custom official or the custom officials, I should say, could probably expect um, further um, threats, further um, assaults, not only amongst themselves, but perhaps of their families, uh, further destruction to their home, or even worse, um, death. Even uh, customs officials, folks, no matter how hard they try, they are being outsmarted. Of course, yes, Thomas Gage is in Boston. Yes, he thinks he's got the upper hand on the situation, but he doesn't. British officers knew very well that acts of violence, or I should say clashes, unruly rest, led to using unnecessary military force, which meant producing bad images of officers involved. Not trying to sound political, folks, but... Um, we see this a lot in today's unstable world where, sadly, and sadly, there are some officers who do, some law enforcement officers who do things that they should not be doing. And the sad part is, is that when they commit those inappropriate actions, they make the rest, they make all the other police officers suffer at their, um, at the expense of their uh, personal ignorance. So, is it fair to say that even in colonial times, in 18th century England, could there have been British officers who might have engaged in um, unnecessary actions that um, did result in um, producing bad images for the other officers who would not have uh, partaken in such activities or who would not have resorted to uh, such measures that sadly did happen by those whom used the whom used unnecessary force um it could be yes and it could be no but maybe we ought to find out a little bit more 1763 saw london troops fire on an unruly crowd resulting in four deaths 1768 saw 12 people die at the expense of troops firing into crowds I don't know if this was one event. It could have been multiple events. But we know in the year 1768, there were 12 people whom died at the expense of troops firing into crowds. 1769, there were nine people whom died from troop firings. Well, there, there was accountability to this, folks. The majority of the court cases charged the commanding officers per the regiment they oversaw with manslaughter and found them guilty of manslaughter. Manslaughter is unlawful killing of a person or persons without any sense of remorse, or let alone without any concept of choosing to understand unforeseen consequences that would come about as a result of 
one's uh, recklessness or a group of people's recklessness aimed at an innocent party. So, even in 18th century England, folks, we are seeing these kinds of um, actions. And it might be fair to say that behavior like this, regardless of circumstances, has probably been going on since the beginning of time. Of course, we do have to be reminded of the fact that um, that even in 18th century times, we didn't have such things as social media. We didn't have breaking news alerts. So if we, if if anybody uh, from uh, colonial America read in the paper, say in the year 1763, that hey, London troops fired on an unruly crowd, resulting in four deaths. That was breaking news, even if the event happened a month earlier. But to read about it, yeah, it was a big deal. I mean, to think about it, four people dying in the midst of a, a protest. You know, usually when we think of four people dying, that probably could be that could be because of a, a disease-related uh, matter or illness-related matter, but not by means of um, unruly protest. But it did happen. Uh, prior to the 64th and 65th Regiment's arrival into Boston, one officer and three privates were brought to trial in the midst of having shot and killed multiple men in London during a riot. From 1765 to 1768, during a four-year span which uh, saw the 29th uh, Regiment afoot in Nova Scotia, soldiers had encounters with civilians, but un but fortunately no deaths, which was a good thing. It'd be interesting, you know, I don't know if um, Matthew Chambers partook in any uh, encounters with civilians. It wasn't uh, mentioned, but it's probably fair to say that Matthew Chambers would have known of other men in his regiment who probably did partake in activities that did have the potential to... Um, cause harm to uh, Halifax's um, regular uh, citizenry. Now, our next question, folks, is going to involve uh, multiple answers, but it's uh, answers that are more um, based upon chronological sequence. And the reason why I say that is because, for one, there's more than one answer to this question. But by telling you all this in a chronological sequence, you all will get a better understanding behind what um, unraveled in late February 1770. So let's, let's go ahead and uh, be prepared for this question. What happened along Boston's north end February 22nd, 1770? February 22nd, folks. Late Late February, it's probably very, well, I wouldn't say probably, it is very chilly in Boston. Not just chilly, it's, pro it, it's probably cold. Um, I would imagine the temperature is probably somewhere near or right at uh, zero degrees. But believe it or not, folks, people are outside. And I will admit that there's probably a good likelihood that um, both, um, we haven't gotten those names just yet, loyalists and patriots, but it is probably fair to say that um, opposing parties are at each other's throats. They're probably taunting one another, making verbal threats. They're doing just about something, no matter how big or small it is, just to test the other side's waters to the point where if the other side doesn't back off, 
they're going to be in for something very, very rude. In terms of a rude awakening, they're going to be in for something that that could uh, ultimately lead to um, not only something even worse on the day that it's happening, but perhaps something even worse that could uh, come about not only within a week or so, but within the next couple of weeks. So, what happened along Boston's North End, February 22nd, 1770? Here we go. For starters, a group of protesters partook in a demonstration outside the home of Ebenezer Richardson. Not Ebenezer Scrooge, folks, but Ebenezer Richardson, whose occupation happened to be customs officer. Boy, I tell you, those customs officers really don't have any true privacy. They really, they just don't have any, whatever protection they have is minimal, but they just, um, they are really at their own, um, at their own mercy when it, when it comes to um, protecting themselves. But customs officer, um, being a customs officer is not an occupation that uh, most people um, take kindly to. Secondly, prior to Ebenezer Richardson returning home, he tried but failed to break up a protest in front of a shop whose owner was a loyalist. Okay, so I think it is fair to say that we already have established some uh, concept or some degree of um, de of determining those whom are loyalist and those whom are patriot, but it hasn't gone into a full-scale effect just yet. But anyways, um, Ebenezer Richardson, is, is he tried to break up a protest in front of a shop whose owner was a loyalist named Theophilus Lilly. Third, Lily's shop being less than a mile from Richardson's home. So remember, folks, Ebenezer Richardson didn't have to uh, go by horse and buggy five miles away from his home. We should keep in mind that um, people's uh, business shops were adjacent to their homes that they lived in. But in this case, um, Ebenezer Richardson is trying to help out his uh, friend, uh, Theophilus Lilly, whom had probably been um, subjected to threats and taunts um, in the days leading up to uh, February 22nd. But um, being that uh, Theophilus Lilly's uh, shop is less than a mile from Richardson's uh, home, the protesters, folks, chased down Mr. Richardson where the unruly crowd began throwing stones, resulting in breaking some windows to knocking down his wife. In other words, the stones that they threw into Ebenezer's Richard's home, obviously, for one, they broke the window, but his wife was nearby to where the stone hit her in the head that she fell back and fell backwards and landed on the ground. Now, I've seen documentaries on television of the man uh, who, uh, of individuals portraying Ebenezer Richardson, and he's telling his family, get down, um, stay in a, a sheltered area inside, but get down, I'm going to... Uh, duck down. I'm going to uh, take care of this matter. Fourth, Ebenezer Richardson loaded his gun with swan shot. Okay, we're not talking about a regular musket ball here, folks. Swan shot is used primarily, well, yes, I mean, swan shot, he's loading his gun with swan shot before uh, loading it with a, uh, with a necessary um, musket ball for which the um, for which he'll be able to go about firing the gun with, but he uses a swan shot 
and swan shot is primarily designed for hunting um, large uh, birds, including smaller game. But yet it just so happens that swan shot could be used in battle. Not just battle, but confrontation. Ebenezer Richardson retaliates, folks, by firing into the crowd of protesters. He's hoping that by firing with the means of swan shot that it's going to just... It's going to get everybody away from his house. In, in other words, he's hoping that everybody's going to disperse immediately at once. Well, people do disperse. But sadly, someone's life was tragically taken on February 22nd of 1770 from within the crowd of angry protesters. How about an 11-year-old boy named Christopher Sider? You know, 11 years old, folks, that, that's terrible. On the other hand, I'm not trying to say that... I'm not trying to excuse what Ebenezer Richardson did. But we also must keep in mind that in 1770, if a child made it past the age of 10, and I've said this before, and it's just another reminder, if a child made it past the age of 10, he or she was considered an adult. Many believed at that time that once a child reached the age of 10, he or she had... Um, become immune to um, diseases that often um, took children at such very young ages, like smallpox, yellow fever, um, just to name a few of few common diseases of the day. But nonetheless, uh, 11-year-old Christopher Sider was shot. Well, let's find out a little bit um, background on Christopher Sider. He was the son of a poor he was the son of poor German immigrants. He was born in 1758, uh, just a couple of years after the Seven Years' War began. Many historians believe that this young fellow's death was for one it was it was unique given that it's been widely considered to be uh, the first official casualty in the American Revolution prior to shots being fired around the world come April 19th of 1775. So we have to keep in mind that, it, that, that the first casualties really, in a sense, did not occur on the battlefield when the uh, first shots were heard around the world on April 19th, 1775. They actually happened along the streets of Boston. 11-year-old Christopher Sider, when he was shot, he was wounded in the arm and the chest. He died on the evening of February 22nd, despite, all, despite Dr. Joseph Warren's uh, valiant efforts to um, save the boy's life. His efforts um, came up short. Christopher Sider got a... Um, got a very nice funeral, and as a matter of fact, we might even think of it in today's time as this young fellow lying in state. Samuel Adams, uh, John Adams's cousin, uh, coordinated Sider's uh, funeral, which saw more than 2,000 people attend. Christopher Sider was buried in the Granary Burying Ground, which just so happens to be Boston's third oldest cemetery that dates back to 1660. So the cemetery itself would have been 110 years old at the time Christopher Sider died. I can't imagine being his parents knowing that they're, uh, well, of course, we would like to think of it in 1770 as um, 
as Christopher Sider being an adult, but I'm sure there are plenty of others who still thought of him as a as a young uh, child. Uh, it's one thing, yes, it, it would have been tragic enough if Mr. and Mrs. Sider lost their son to a disease, but to be shot was a whole other thing. On the other hand, you know, for an 11-year-old to be partaking in in harassing in harassing a um, an individual of the uh, opposing party was one thing, but to partake in throwing objects at the individual's home that um, penetrated the glass, you know, broke the windows and knocked uh, Mr. Richardson's wife down. That to me is something that probably was not a good idea to have been doing. But the sad part is, even if they had not thrown uh, rocks into um, into the uh, windows, who's not to say that Ebenezer Richardson would not have um, would not have still uh, fired um, fired at the crowd and resulted in um, injuring or let alone um, killing someone who uh, ultimately died. And I'm sure many of you are now wondering what what became of Ebenezer Richardson after this incident. So here's our next question: Was Ebenezer Richardson convicted? in the killing of 11-year-old Christopher Sider. It turns out, folks, he was found guilty in the spring of 1770. He was convicted of murder. However, I have some sad news to tell you all. The royal government decided to uh, take matters into its own hands by allowing Ebenezer Richardson to be acquitted, where he got a royal pardon including a new position within the Customs Department, all based upon the fact he acted in self-defense. All based upon the fact, folks, that he acted in self-defense. Now, on one hand, yes, he was being harassed. And yes, the protesters did throw uh, rocks into his window. And yes, resulting in his wife being knocked to the ground, that was bad. But did it give Ebenezer Richardson the right to fire into a crowd? Should he have fired in a different direction? Uh, perhaps so, but who's not to say that if he fired in a different direction that uh, somebody else would have gotten shot who was not part of the uh, protesters' uh, movement? Hard to know. But what we do know is that um, the royal pardoning of Mr. Richardson marked a major injustice along the American side where it would become just one of many other injustices which had already occurred, including ones that would later follow. So the current um, injustices being um, the legislative ma measures that Parliament uh, passed without the uh, colonists' uh, proper consent, uh, most notably the Sugar Act, the Stamp Act, even Quartering Act of, of sorts, and um, the Townshend duties. Those are just some of the handful of measures that Parliament has imposed upon the colonists uh, to where they are um, seething with anger, or teething with anger. I, I, teething, seething, I mean, one way or another, they are, they are angry. But the acquittal of Ebenezer Richardson is only going to make matters worse. And when I'm on the air again next, we're going to, um, we're going to make our way to uh, March 5th of 1770. So in other words, would it be fair to say as we end this podcast segment episode that what has taken place 
on February February 22nd of 1770 is just the beginning of what will become the ultimate um, inevitable act behind what takes place of Mar on March 5th, 1770, to where whatever peaceful state of relations there were between uh, the townspeople in Boston, including those uh, British troops whom, say, had not married uh, local Bostonian women, but yet maintained a modified uh, state of uh, peaceful relations with the townspeople, is it fair to say that that, could, that has great potential to change as we... Um, get closer and closer to March 5th? Absolutely. Not trying to give anything away, but I think it is fair to say now, based upon what we've learned uh, for, what ha for what has uh, taken place on February 22nd, 1770, and the tragic death of an 11-year-old uh, boy in Christopher Sidere, we are starting to learn now that the, uh, that the peace itself, whatever peace has still remained afloat, it's just a matter of time before that peace will be shattered to where uh, whatever uh, state of peace has existed will never be able to be the same as it was prior to the uh, events that uh, took place from mid-February into early March 1770. Well, thank you for your time as always, and I look forward to being back on the air with you all again next time. And wherever you all may live in the world, continue to stay safe and take care for now.